Well, thank you all for having us uh, today, and it's wonderful to be here. Um, I guess as we kind of get started, I have to underscore the irony of the fact that we are in an institution of sorts and at an art fair um, talking about performing critique. So um, I do acknowledge that that automatically makes this a fault line for a ripe conversation, and I do hope you'll participate in it. Um, so we're here uh, with, as Kefilo said, three incredible creative practitioners, artists, um, and you know, I might say, um, personally, individuals who are activists of some sort, um, who imbue their work with a politic, and, um, and very importantly so. Um, this chapter of discussion is very much so talking about this idea of performing critique, um, asking whether or not um, there's a pressure for artists to perform critically engaged creative work, um, to predict and play a part in affecting new or alternative futures independently or at an invitation of an art institution. Um, so very minimally, I'll let that sit for the time being. And I'm going to hand it over to our incredible presenters um, who are going to each show a bit of their practice, um, talk a little bit, and or perform even. Um, and then we're going to open up from there more into a wider discussion. Um, so I believe it's Travis who's taking it away first. No, Jacob. Oh, yes, Jacob. OK. Jacob's going to take it away first and uh, presenting some material from their practice. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Cool. OK. Um, yeah, I was going to not do this, this piece because um, I feel like as artists who are engaging with kind of political issues, like there's this urge to be constantly making new work all the time. Um, and although I am making new work, I was like, oh, this is an old piece of work. But actually, it was, it's made like less than a year ago, so it's not actually that old. And I'm going gonna, gonna to share it with you. Sorry, I can't see the mouse. Where is it? If you full screen, it will it will um, command F. Oh, fine. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Okay, so this is the alphabetical anthology of white liberal <laughs> proverbs. Um, a is for all lives matter, although all lives are not treated as collateral when we're harshening our stance on immigration, and all lives aren't routinely targeted and abused in racist deportations. And all lives do not make up 40% of US and 15% of UK prison populations, which is alarming considering the matter of all lives now lived out in mass incarceration. Ooh. B, oh, no. B is for be the change you want to see in society. Straighten your back, be the new black, and be access to affordable education. Both eyes on the prize as you be the end of public sector privatization. Be positive and be billions and billions of pounds worth of reparations for Caribbean nations burdened with buggery laws born from British subjugation. C is for, can I touch your hair? Can I make you cringingly aware of how curious I find you? Can I take that little bit of your culture? Can I take that little bit of your... History, can I take that little bit of your soul and can I turn it into a 14 pound or 20 pound commodity? Can I collect objects of your resistance to curate as ornate oddities? So I'm just gonna show the, those are the first three pages of a book which I have on sale today um, for 12 pounds. Um, yeah, those are the first three pages of a book called The Alphabetical Anthology of White Liberal Proverbs. And yeah, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Like it, that piece of work is a year old, but actually none of those things, none of the alphabetical anthology 
I haven't stopped hearing those things. In fact, actually traveling around, more people have been touching my hair recently than ever before. And I, I don't think that like, yeah, those issues don't go away. So I thought, why not share a bit of that, even though it's old? But I'm also going to share some new work as well. Um, I'm going to share a poem, and I'm going to share a song. So <clears throat> that the last, yes. I've got two songs, so I have to pick one. Which one should I do? Yes, I'm just going to do this one. Can you hear me at the back? Maybe you might need to turn off. Can you turn off this mic here? Can you hear me at the back? Turn me back on. Um, yeah, this is a poem that I just recently wrote. Um, and that, so the, the words white wine, I'm I was tired of white walls, white wine, 
and White People is a quote from Basquiat. And this poem starts off with Basquiat. And I was going to try and have some images. I'll just have one image of, the, of a person that I mentioned in the poem. Yeah, I have this one. Okay. Basquiat is not the only legendary star child in the house of black fine artists. Art historians might tell you it all started with Aaron Douglas, who captured in overlapping purple hues the layers of painstaking work that we do, built cities and bridges, dreamed real pyramids, drew blueprints for freedom inside our eyelids, liberated figures congregated in silhouettes, celebrating emancipations we know yet forget, the freedom to paint with our hands or our minds reflections of self that we sometimes can't find. Black art is protest, agitation, unrest. It un encourages us, nourish nourishes us to see ourselves at our best. Even in moments of defeat, defe repeated by skillful, sorry, my handwriting is fucked up. Like, <laughs> um, it's like, this is why you should memorize things. Um, even moments of defeat repeated by black hands can inspire us to start fires and make new demands. Mary Turner spoke out in 1918 when her innocent husband was beaten and hung. She too was lynched while pregnant and young. In retaliation to a plantation worker who killed their slave master, an act of passion that ended in disaster for 11 innocent black men lynched by a white mob. Mary Turner's short protest was captured in clay and then plaster by a young sculptor called Metavo Warwick Fuller. In her sculpture, she cradles her womb and walks on while mired and harassed by the ground she stands on. It consumes her like creeping fire creeping up sleeping curtains, like hands clambering up over drowning bodies weighed down with chains and heavy soaking hessian cloth. It's a sculpture that says, how can I fight when my hands are tied? How can I hold my head when they've taken my pride? How can I live when my spirit has died? But here I am, clutching my womb, my symbol of creation. And it's what we create that will be our salvation. This sculpture was made over 100 years ago by a black artist, a black woman called Meta Warwick Fuller, born in 1877, a progenitor Rodan. And all my favorite sculpt and my favorite sculpture of all of hers is a young boy holding his hands, holding in his hands a talking skull. A talking skull? A talking skull? In Shakespeare, you might hear that we talk to the dead. Hamlet addresses Hamlet addresses us as he holds a skull and says, Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him. Here hung those lips that I have kissed. I know now oft where be thy gibes, your gambols, your song. But in Merta Warwick Fuller's sculpture, the skull is still singing. You just don't know how to listen. Meta Warwick Fuller was not just a sculptor, she was also a poet. In a poem she wrote reflecting on death, she makes one request. Or may the voyage not be arduous, or long, but echoing with chant and joyful song. No, this is not a request. It is an observation, one made by societies in 54 African nations. The dead speak, our ancestors speak, if we can take the time to listen. So what do Basquiat, Douglas, and Warwick Fuller have to say to us? I suggest you look at their work and find out. Yeah, I really... 
<laughs> Sorry, that was really messy form. I'm not used to reading poems like out of my sketchbook. Um, but I wanted to share something new and something that's still forming. And also, I really suggest that you check out Meta Vo's work. Um, because, yeah, this was made by a black woman over 100 years ago. And um, it's one of my favorite sculptures of all time. And I guess if I think about it, it's, it feels like the sculpture is asking me to look back and listen mm -hmm. to what my grandparents had to say about the situation that I'm in on both sides of my family and keep looking back. And I feel like we're constantly being cut off from the people who've come before us. So, yeah, I thought I'd share that poem. And sorry, it was a bit sloppy, but that's all I'm going to share today. <clears throat> well, awesome. Thank you so much. So, next up, we have Travis. Hi, everyone. That was a really, like, meh. Hi. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hi. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to just start a timer on my phone because I'm known to go on tangents in these things. Um, so I'm just trying to practice uh, timekeeping. Hmm, interesting. Um, okay, cool. Um, so my name is Travis Alabanza. I'm a performer, an artist, and I'm loads of other things, but I guess those are the things that are kind of relevant today. Um, I want to name that I've got something written down on my laptop. Um, I'm naming it actually as part of this because I'm going to talk for the whole time, and normally I don't do that. Normally I'm constantly performing. Um, but I think it's important in conversations about critique that we're also aware of this space, um, my positionality in this space, other people's positionalities, how that's different, um, and my humanity, which I'm going to be talking about, like my relationship to my humanity and these institutions and how I maneuver, uh, maneuver through it. Um, for context that I think is important to what I'm saying um, is that I never went to art school um, and I grew up in a council estate with no real reference to what an artist is or what an artist was, and I didn't do fine art. Um, the type of art I make um, came through my bedroom and then came through to queer clubs, to toilets, to backstreet theatres um, and the live art world. And it's only really in the last year and a half that I've ever been invited to a gallery. Um, and I, I say the word invite um, because I um, have been to galleries prior to that, um, but I definitely think the notion of being invited makes you feel so different in that space. Um, and it makes me really nervous about doing these kind of talks. I don't do them a lot. I don't speak like this a lot. Um, and also talking alongside artists that maybe I also um, used to Google or still Google and uh, have reference points to as well. It makes it feel like a weird um, relationship. And I used to hide my nerves um, when I was doing something, but now it's the first thing I name in the room that I'm nervous. Um, and I name it to try and build a humanity, to remove this idea that professionalism has to equal roboticism, to embed a working class culture and differences, not just in theory, but in our practice of how we actually expect people to be in these institutions and these spaces. I think if we were having this conversation in a living room or in a squat or in an independent space, then maybe this first uh, long-winded intro wouldn't be there. But I think because we're inside Somerset House, I went to... Um, university for like a year and a half before I dropped off at King's next door. This space is very loaded for me, so I have to name it. Um, but also because I believe that my feelings are paramount in a discussion about working with institutions. But I also feel that feelings are often never spoken about in these conversations. When we're performing critique, when we're talking about critique, when we're criticising art world, no one ever is talking about how the people feel in the space. 
Um, so I wanted to just centre that, and I also wanted to use this minute and a half to ease in. So that was my minute and a half to ease in. Thanks. Um, <laughs> cool. So this, I'm going to try not to be too much of here, but I know if I didn't, I would just ramble. Um, so what I thought this talk was about, and I'm saying that because I think it is, but I want to say what I'm coming at it from, is that we've all kind of noticed in, for me, the last few years... Um, these institutions, these places, these big festivals, taking notice of a language that we're using in a language of resistance um, and taking notice in the sense that they've started to have more events that maybe use a language that we're seeing on Tumblr or online or in our social circles. And um, it's that question of co-opting coming in. Obviously, in the last year, we've seen the Tate not only have uh, used the word queer in their queer British art exhibition, but then roll straight into a Soul of the Nation exhibition. I'm sure we've all been invited to too many late at insert gallery events um, and it prevents an interesting conflict for me um, a conflict of holding a balance for critique for wariness but also for experiencing joy and also let's be real money um, a lot of these events were my first ever time working for big institutions so two years ago I was invited to perform at a at Tate um, and it was my first actual like paycheck that could maybe get me a new pair of shoes. Um, and I continued to work for them. My first time at a late of Tate, then progressed to more work with the Tate um, later in a residency. And in addition to these events, I've also been to a lot of them. And I think no one also notices that sometimes they're also fun. And I want to name that first. Like, sometimes we all go to these events and actually, like, they're playing music we like. We're seeing DJs that we know and go to clubs of. We're seeing artists that are maybe our friends. We're seeing art that we recognise. And I've seen my friends have fun who would normally leave these places feeling dull, um, feeling uninspired, feeling uninterested. And I'm watching my... Uh, black friends have moments of celebration, watching their friends perform, maybe they perform themselves, seeing artwork that they like up on these walls. Um, and it always feels like a really weird balance because I often feel what this critique misses is that we go straight to critiquing X and Y that's happening here, but also miss out on the notions that are first happening, which is there's some joy and happiness. We skip that part and move straight to why this joy is problematic, but I wanted to first name that maybe there is joy in some of these experiences that we're having. Um, and I think this makes it hard. I think it makes it complex because... It also gives us joy, for like lack of a better word, in other ways, in the terms of paychecks. I'm sure myself and the other people on this panel have negotiated the complex feeling of working for somewhere that is also then going to maybe mean that you don't have to stress about your rent that month or that you can get your friend that you wanted a birthday present or you can take someone out for dinner that you have a crush on. Um, and I feel like often as artists, we are wrapped up in these less clear emotions around taking money. Um, but I feel like actually this happens with any work, right? Like any work we do under capitalism, there's some compromise that we're making to do that labour. Um, and I feel like something happens when we're doing artwork that we hold a harsher uh, glance of ourselves on that. Um, so what I think I wanted to take from that and break it into like kind of three problems that I have onto what's going on. And a lot of these revolve around focusing the institution of the Tate, because that's just the institution that I had the most relation to in the last year. Um, and I thought about when I was invited to be um, an artist in resident there for the year, and I thought about how conflicting that felt for me to walk into a building uh, that is seeped in colonial history and present myself as a black person in that room. And I thought about how diversity is now used or has continuously been used as a capitalist venture to make another place look good, and how you then become the mechanism in making 
that thing look good. Um, but often what I'm trying to uh, highlight is that these institutions aren't caring for us. So my emotions are not cared for in that space. And what that does to us when we're working for them means that uh, they're not actually ready to hold the bodies of the people that they're claiming they want to do. It's a shallow invite. It's an invite, but it's not an invite where you care about who you're sat next to or care uh, what they're eating. It's kind of like going to a dinner party and not asking someone if they're vegetarian. Like, you in, you're vegetarian, you turn up to the dinner party, you're excited because you're having dinner, and then you just got, like, a plate of meat in front of you, and you're kind of like, well, what the fuck, Tate? Like, why are you giving me meat? Uh, I said I was vegetarian. And... Um, I'm not vegetarian at the moment, and it's really getting to me. Um, <laughs> so I think about the first day when I walked in there, and I thought about how they were really, really, really happy uh, that they had such a hashtag diverse group of artists and such a hashtag reflective of common society and such a risk that they were taking someone that was doing this type of work and mixing people and wow, 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 wow. And then I needed to pee in the middle of um, the induction um, and I really needed to pee. And I went to the toilets and there was no toilets that I could use. There was male or female toilets and they hadn't thought about what it meant that they, at the same time they were bragging that they had a trans person there. They were not also thinking about how we would all pee. And this, I was not the first trans person that works there. So what that tells me is that there's a continuous relationship to inviting these artists into these spaces, but not genuinely caring about our needs and our comfort. Uh, when I then went into the women's toilet, um, I was greeted with looks, I was greeted with stares, and I think there was like a notice there, a talk that went round about how to accommodate me needing a wee. And I just thought that that was absolutely wild in the sense that um, here I was being invited to somewhere and invited to this institution, and before I could even critique my relationship to that institution, I knew that they were not safe or ready to have me. Uh, within the first three months, myself and another black artist there were the only people to be stopped out of the cohort uh, by security nearly every single day for our ID card. Despite working there, despite looking like this and not having many other people in the building that look like this, they still had to check every single week that I actually worked there, um, as if when I was sneaking in, I would not choose like a more discreet outfit to walk in on. <laughs> Um, but what that also tells me again is that we, they, want, they, want us in, uh, they want us in theory, but they don't know how to have us in practice. Uh, they want us to exist in the room and show and be there and like wave our hands like this, but they don't actually care about what it means to accommodate us. Um, they don't actually know how to accommodate black artists. And I feel like this is a constant thing I'm seeing in people's relationships to these institutions, is that we turn up and then we have horrible experiences and we go back. And I'm trying to figure out myself um, how that relationship works for me as an artist. And I think I should have said at the beginning that I have no answers for this panel. I'm still working through it. And I still have questions. And I'm probably saying stuff that had, could, could be answered or could be answers too. But I think that what I feel like with all of these late late at things, these new things that we're seeing, is that it's a packaging. It's a packaging that needs to be neat, it needs to be tidy, and most of all, it comes and it goes, right? Because the people still programming these events, the people still creating these events, um, are often not from our communities, are often when we still look up to the higher levels of who are producing and culturally doing these events, they're white, middle-class uh, women uh, that I've worked with, and sometimes men as well, creating these events for us to be packaged in and go. So we go to late at Tate, we have a great time, and then we leave. And then we're invited next month. I had this joke with a friend, we were doing a late at Tate, and I said, weren't we all just at the late at the ICA like two months ago? And it's not even like new stuff, it's like the same package of things going round. Like this is what's hot right now, and we're gonna package it, and we're gonna put it in these places. 
And it creates an uncomfortable notion because it also gives us a homogenous idea of the black artists that are currently working in London. There's tons of different types of black artists. We're not a homogenous group. We're creating loads of different things. There's loads of us. But what they do is, is they, pick a, they pick a selection and it's like packaged round. And that means that we're created with not a redistribution of wealth among our communities, but we're also created with a really narrow, um, small idea of what black art is. Um, I want to talk mainly then now, and then I'll finish, about the Queer British Art Exhibition and how I think that is a great example of this problem that we're having with institutions uh, using our language and inviting us in for this language and how they completely miss it and how maybe that forces us into a weird relationship of being complicit. Um, and I'm asking uh, how much I am complicit when working with these institutions, and that's an open question. I think it's a really complicated relationship because we also need to get paid. We also need to make our money, but what are my tactics that I'm still working through to try and solve this complication that I have with working with these places. So um, I don't know who saw the Queer British Art Exhibition. If you didn't, you really weren't missing much. Um, it was using the word queer, um, which I found ridiculously interesting because for me, um, it was the most boring, if it was queer, it was the most boring queer thing I've ever seen. Um, and it was really interesting because it was a long time in the making, right? It had been planned for a really long time. There was tons of conversations with the creator about it. Um, and there was critique along the way of what was the problems and the shortfalls. There was conversations completely throughout about, hey, flagging up that this maybe doesn't look as representative or as queer as you like it to be. Um, but what they did by using the word queer is they meant that then certain people would spend their hard-earned money to come and watch it. Because it was like £14 to get in. And to the average queer person, that's like a lot of money to spend on an exhibition. And what they were doing by using the word queer is it meant that certain people would definitely come and see it. And then what they then had and were met with, I don't want to speak for everyone's experience, but for me, is an exhibition that was not queer. Uh, we saw predominantly men, we saw gay men, and we saw stale work, really, really stale. <laughs> stale, just like really boring work. Um, we saw a lack of trans identities. We saw almost no black or brown people. When they were, they were sitters in the show. We saw ridiculously no, like, uh, lesbians or queer women or any of these other people and it felt like a real angry moment for me that they were using the word queer because for me it highlighted that these institutions um, are doing this for marketing and they're doing this to make money and they're using our language to do this and right this isn't new but then what was the most interesting thing is they then responded to the critique by creating an event a one-day event called Queer and Now and Queer and Now was like a late except it happened all day so it was a midday brunch that went all the way through and with this they programmed every single uh, queer like they programmed just what they thought would be the best and hottest um, queer artists for that day and it was really an interesting moment because there was lots of celebration about this event right there was like wow there's a voguing workshop happening in the Tate or wow there's um, loads of black and brown artists here doing stuff at the Tate or wow there's um queer women talking about these things, but it felt like an afterthought, right? It felt like an add-on. It felt like something that was not intentional. It felt like a response. So a response to them messing up to the exhibition was to put us in for one day. And to me, it feels like they do this to create a tick box, it, to create a thing that means that they can now say they've done queer and now they move on to Soul of Nation. Soul of Nation is different. I don't want to talk about that because I think it has a different relationship as well. But um, for the queer British art, it felt like a real cop-out. It felt like something that was packaged, and it felt like something that um, didn't really amount to what it could have been. 
Um, so what I'm going to show now is, um, in a minute, is my... They invited me to perform, so maybe I should give background. So they invited me to perform at the Queer and Now exhibition. Um, and I had a real issue with it. I said, um, I'm, I'm not going to do my stuff. I want to make something specific to the thing. Um, and they said, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. And then they said, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, well, I want to critique uh, what this means for me to be invited. And they were like, that's fine, yeah, we love critique, we love feedback, yeah. Um, and then I sent out my plan for performing there, and it got edited down. Uh, they said, actually, I'm sorry, you can't do X, Y, and Z, why don't you try this? Uh, and I said, oh, uh, bloop, like, you kind of said that I could do critique, and this is my version of critique. And they said, oh, sorry, like, we're just thinking that it might be a bit risky. And I said, hold on a minute, um, You've invited us here to do this, and now I'm presenting you with what I'm doing, and you want to stop me. Uh, I've already not been allowed, or people like me, or artists before like me, haven't been allowed in this exhibition, and now we're giving a day, and you're still not letting me critique. I think this is a really important moment in like how we are still being invited into these spaces. We're being invited with premises. Um, I think it's totally relevant, and I'm sorry to bring this up again. I feel like everyone brings this up in most panels recently, but I think it's totally relevant to what we see with Monroe or public figures when we are told to do one thing, and as soon as we deviate from how they want us, to package diversity, we are shunned out or punished. Uh, so when we are working with these institutions, we have to work under a model that is actually not us. And what that does to our emotions and us as an artist is interesting. Uh, so I said, OK, I'll read some poems. And they were like, great. And then instead, I did this. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to show you a clip of it. And I think it kind of sums up better than I can talk about how I feel in these institutions. Um, you might need it up. Thank you. 
Um, so I'm pausing it because I'm too embarrassed to show the rest, but what I wanted to do was really just bring the point in um, that, and also my time's running out, but what I really wanted to do was bring in the point that um, how they responded to me doing something that was unplanned was very interesting. There was a lot of debate about what I was doing. You can catch it all on YouTube. It's basically a lip sync to Anastasia. But the reason I did that was um, I wanted to do something that took no effort from me. I wanted to put on a song and just lip sync. I wanted to give them kind of something that was packaged as queerness, i.e. lip syncing, but something that they hadn't planned. Um, but what was interesting is the creator was of the Queer British exhibition was there during that showing and she walked out. And what I think that tells me is that uh, these things are put up and packaged as something political and then when politics meets them, they're not ready. Um, I wanted to end with like some of the things I'm still trying to work through when I'm working with these institutions. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to bring other people in. Um, I think that part of that has to be part of your practice when working with these places. Um, we shouldn't assume that everyone doesn't want to work with these places. We should give everyone the option to share resources and share how we're doing in these institutions. What that looks like for me is creating a PDF and staying really on top of other artists that are doing work, doing different work to me, other black artists that are making other things and making sure that constantly when we're in there, we are talking about them, we are asking how we can get them in, then demanding that they're in, sharing how we are doing in there, talking about how we're getting paid, how we're working with these people. For me, that has been like a huge thing that I'm working on, but it's almost central to how I want my practice to develop at the moment. And that's what I'm interested in kind of discussing with other artists today is like how we're doing that. How are we making sure that it's not just us being brought in as the one person that makes them like diversity tick box? Because often you'll find that you're brought in for a certain reason, i.e. I'm light, i.e. I'm not disabled, i.e. I'm slim and it's neat and packaged. So how do I bring in a messier trans person? How do I bring in a trans person that doesn't fit that, that may not speak in a way that I do, that may not create the work that I make? Um, so for me, that's the core question I'm asking is how are we bringing other people in? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thank you so much for those thoughts. I'm going to be actually coming back to a lot of those points later on. It seems like we're rolling through. Now we have Evan. Hi, everyone. Hi. You know, I'm just going to preface. Because, so basically, I've written um, a letter. And actually, I just want to preface this um, letter just to say that um, I guess in relation to the other arts on the panel, um, you know, I have been practicing for a little bit longer. Um, I do have a certain amount of educational privilege. I did go to art school, but this doesn't relate to um, an economic privilege. Um, what else did I want to say? Da, da, da. Yeah, no, I'll just say that. So let me just put these on. Wait, now I have to... Oh. I need to drag it to the right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Oh. It's a bit smaller, isn't it? All right. So. Dear black queer artist, in this moment today, we sit on a panel at an art fair together in our plurality. It feels crucial that um, we actually speak to each other and not just the institutions that we find ourselves in. 
In the spirit of, an esta- of establishing a good practice amongst ourselves, I believe it's important to begin and end with the work, so the artwork, the way we present whatever it is that we produce. Um, and, and so I'm going to actually start this presentation with an extract of a, um, of a letter that I wrote in 2014. Um, and yeah, so the letter was presented in lieu of a performance at Innova Rivington Place. Um, and today I'm writing, rather than writing to the institution with my frustrations, I'm writing to you. Okay, so I start the letter by describing the performance that I had intended to do. Uh, I'm not going to play that part because it's, it's quite long, but I'm just going to go in to a part that happens later. A taste so bad that the thought of performing my original work in this space, at least without some kind of preface, feels like a lie. I would be doing it to tick a box, to entertain, or to give the audience what they want. And this is the opposite of what my performance work seeks to do. Oh, sorry, it paused. as a space to reflect on one's truth, so I hope that those who have invited me here today will allow me the space to reflect on mine. As an artist, I'm often thinking around the artwork, <clears throat> the conditions it operates within and where it should position itself. I'm sharing these words with you now because I won't perform just for the money, the opportunity, or the platform. I make art because I need to do so to survive in this world that would rather people like me not exist, let alone flourish. So this is what makes me a specific kind of artist, a cute... queer, trans, intersex, person of colour, artist, as opposed to just an artist. But it's a frame, it's a context, okay? It's not a name or a label. It's important to make the distinction. My experiences of navigating the world impact and influence my art. In fact, they are the artwork. Maybe you think I'm asking too much. That I should be grateful for what's on offer. The thing is, my work matters to me, and the way it is handled by other people matters to me too. I face in the real world continue to manifest and perpetuate themselves in the art world, well then, I want no part of it. 
Art is a form of self-care for me. And this is part of that healing process. Okay. Yeah, so that was in 2014. And then actually, um, I just wanted to include this here because it's Jacob and Jacob's on the panel. And actually Jacob then made this illustration <laughs> based on the performance. Uh, when's that from? It's this from one, Fear Brown Queers? The book called Fear Brown Queers, yeah. which is also on sale. Yeah, yeah, it's also on sale. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that. Um, yeah, and so although I can continue to be frustrated in my interactions, um, actually most of the time in my interactions with institutions, I realise that I now find myself in a more powerful position, and I do want to acknowledge that. Um, and, and it's kind of what we do now that we're here that really concerns me. And so I'd like to address you, me, us, as we are in a place where, at least to the outside world, many of us working in London are now flourishing. And this might not be financially, okay? We might still live in precarious housing and be in debt, but we have access to public platforms and people call on us to speak from this position, as we all are here today, right? And so I just want to share a series of questions I don't really have the answer to, but that are on my mind right now. Who are our spokespeople? What do they look like? And how does their visibility undermine the systems we claim to be working against? Are we really making room for each other? And what is a black queer artist interiority? So this thing that's inside us, our emotional self, our... The self that people don't see, when, when, when what we are or what we represent is always being externalised, made visible, performed. So how do we attend to that space and how do we manifest it in the work? And is instrumentalization as black stroke queer, black queer artists inevitable? And how to cha challenge the institutions when they put us in that situation. Because it's going to happen. It is. But it's like, how do we deal with it when it does that I'm really interested in? And can we get beyond a celebration of our visibility to explore what the art is actually doing? I feel like we rarely have conversations about actual artworks. Um, and what are the ways that we ourselves, and, and that's me too, what are the ways that we are complicit in the system of white supremacy? And what are we doing to counteract it? So now I'm just going to share with you an extract from an essay that I wrote in 2016. Tracing friendship through thin black lines. Car, the spirit of resistance, permeates the following text. Hello, Christine. Car is a term I came to learn of through the work of Lebena Himid and Maud Salter. In the catalogue for the exhibition, New Robes for Marshulan by Lebena Himid, Maud Salter writes that the artwork would often come back devoid of small pieces of card or wool or drawing pins, never vandalised, just depleted. It's nice to think that black people take home small trophies as tokens or saffies. Tokens of remembrance. 
Salter takes a gesture enacted by the viewer as an act of solidarity, friendship even, a sign that the, that the work is made to be shared as a collective endeavour. Across a prolific output of collaborative exhibitions, magazine articles, and catalogue essays, the relationship between this pair of artists is revealed. The traces of friendship that I find encouraging in my own pursuit of a de-individualizing artistic practice. Is there something specific in an artwork made between and for friends? distinct from the increasingly market-driven, archetypal, subject-object relationship. So meeting Labena, Labena Himid, on the 7th of December 2013, at a study day on the work of Claudette Johnson, I approached her to introduce myself. After a brief conversation, she gave me a copy of the exhibition catalogue, Thin Black Lines, an exhibition that, to quote, drawing on multiple languages and media, repositioned the black female presence from the margins to the center of the debate around representation and art making. And what I enjoyed most about the catalogue was the letters to Susan, where Labena writes first-person accounts of memories surrounding the original exhibition, the process, and the trials and tribulations of organizing are made explicit. To quote again, we made it so that we could communicate, so that we could swell the ranks of active, creative, and political artists. We made it for young women like ourselves and also for the thousands of older black women in Britain who had supported the system for decades. We exist and we have long existed in multiplicitous ways. Many are still here, working, surviving, and in some cases, thriving. Study their work, reach out, and be in dialogue. Because, as Abena once said to me, there is no need to reinvent the wheel. And so, um, in the spirit of establishing a good mode of practice amongst ourselves, I'm going to return to an artwork and so this is um, an extract from a radio play that I wrote in 2016 called This Catalogue of Poses, um, and which, which was originally kind of written um, in relation to, I guess, thinking about, um, you know, sort of blackness and social life and kind of thinking about certain kinds of nightlife spaces of the past, present and future. Um, imagining, I guess, the, the violence of these spaces, but also them as sort of utopic spaces. Um, and, and, and with the, the iteration of the work that I'm going to play, um, it actually took place at Transmission Gallery in Glasgow. Um, and, and it was a work that I um, reconfigured to kind of um, engaged with the context of Glasgow and was, was performed and rewritten in collaboration with local musician and performer Cass Ajayi. <laughs> Frankie Knuckles at the Arches, Glasgow, the year is 1993, an industrial building, austere, underneath where the train station used to be, 
The slightly distant yet warm voice begins to speak. The address is poetic but concise. This voice belongs to Abby. Later, a voice of indeterminate gender then begins to speak. The voice modulates mostly in a low frequency, sometimes breaking into a higher pitch. This voice belongs to Zed in a state of pre-infatuation. Thanking the fools of campaigns, this DJ makes support. And a definite version of the same universe, DJ makes would be the headliner. We arrived together with our catalog of poses. Three years now since it started, feeling <coughs> extra black in our being, more and less than one. A man and a woman in matching suits own the club, married. They do their bit for the community, donate to language classes, bring us in from elsewhere. A monopoly on a rapidly creating city. So we will now. Just like a guy. Just like a community. They want to create together. So we will now. Where troubles melt like lemon drops to be real now. Just like a gang, just like a community. A war causing peace fills the room. To the left, a mesh of forty, seeing out the light. There were individual men and women and everyone else. And now there are families and a farming throb of being. Spectral house, face, drop, noise, create hand, lift, elbow, flip, fall. It's okay. It's okay. It's really good. Extravagance is violet. Orange flag breathing danger. Unique as it is seductive. Moderate refraction. Sun as large as a man's fist. Clock time. So dear black queer artist, thank you. Thank you for existing and persisting. May we continue to see each other, stand for each other and center each other, regardless of how bright the light that shines on us may be. So I just want to end this letter with a quote from the Radical Dharma on race, love, and liberation by Jasmine Sadula, Lama Rod Owens, and Reverend Angel Kyoda Williams. So the greatest threat to crowd control is our individual yearning for something better. Maybe it is in the clouds, but it's definitely in the company of each other. The greatest source of our self-defense against the mob mentality of law and order politics is each other. It is not about connecting as couples or as nice, neat households. Not because we are friends or lovers or because we share a common social network, but because we know and share a common knowledge that the personal is political, but the impersonal is powerful. Our greatest liability is thinking that we have to go it alone, that we should trust no one, that no one gets us or our struggle. 
It is about each of us finding strength in ourselves we never knew possible within the fray of friction. No, sorry. We never knew possible at the side of another we don't have to share blood or fluids with to feel. It is about fellowship within the fray of friction. We are defending ourselves against a modern threat of mass disposability. We are not just hungry, we are starving. Together, self-defense is collective transformation. Thanks. So thank you, Jacob, Travis, and Evan, um, and all of you for being here. I'm going to take this opportunity to just reiterate a few strands of things that came up over the course of these incredible presentations. And then my hope is to kind of put some questions forward and that maybe we all can kind of talk amongst ourselves. Um, so thinking about, you know, Travis, you use this term, the work we do under capitalism, or this kind of turn of phrase. And I think that that's something that's advantageous for us to be meditating on um, within this context because um, as it is, the idea of survival as it's tied to capitalism is one that um, persists um, and is complicated and problematic uh, within the discourse of all that's being surfaced today. Um, thinking about what Jacob had put forward, this idea of collecting objects of resistance, of your resistance. Um, from a curatorial perspective, as someone who is an independent curator, this is something that really resonates with me. Um, how do we kind of uh, engage with objects um, with a sense of responsibility um, to our own history, to one another, um, and as well in um, extending that uh, you know, within and entering into public space, acknowledging the vulnerability of those objects. Um, and then Evan, you know, I think that this idea of writing a letter to, um, this question that you asked, are we really making room for each other, is a powerful one. Um, in particular, something that I think I spend a lot of time thinking about because I often, well, always actually, uh, produce projects with the idea in mind that I am doing it for my own um, of sorts, right? Mm -hmm. And so making it a kind of active effort to not work beyond that um, has been something that's been part of my politic, and I've been very explicit about that with institutions. Um, and you know, I think in my younger years of working within the art world, um, not someone who has gone to art school, but someone who has a background in art history. So you know, going through this kind of American liberal arts education, which can be complicated and messy in its own right, um, coming out on the other side of that, entering into the art world, and thinking about um, how to assert that space mm -hmm. has been something that I think has been slightly perverse in watching how it's grown, right? Because um, when you get a reputation for being that person who kind of produces for and by one's own, um, institutions want you to come and produce for them. Um, so thinking of these different things, I, I, I guess you know it's um, a question that I'll put forward to, to each of you or to whomever wants to kind of pick up on it. Um, how do we navigate these sort of different publics within these institutional frameworks? I mean, um, you know, this idea of resistance um, and, and, you know, and critique and how these things might be censored or curtailed by the institution. Um, and who is our audience? Who do we answer to when we produce work? And in this case, when you produce work. Mm -hmm. 
Who's starting? Shall I start? <laughs> Dive in. Um, oh, I mean, these are all, they're big, big questions. Wait, hold on. So the last question, who, who are we speaking to, who are we making work for? Who are we oh, making work yeah, for? Who's our audience? And who do we answer to? Who do we answer to? Well, I feel like both of those things, for me, I want to say that they're my communities. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. say that in, a plur- in the plural sense, because I feel like we have multiple communities. Like, I definitely make, you know, when, I, when I'm making my work, like, I, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about um, my friends, my family seeing it and enjoying it. Like, I think for me, it's really important to not centre whiteness mm-hmm. in my work. Like, of course, I guess how, how we're impacted by it comes in, but I'm not addressing it directly. I just, I, I'm not interested. Um, you know, it's, it's something I've never really have been, and I think it also touches on... What, what Travis um, said, you know, about joy is that, like, in, you know, for me, even, even if I might be dealing with, like, the certain politics of navigating a certain kind of body, ultimately I want people to find joy in the work, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, yeah, it might be thinking through the pain, but I want the result to be one of feeling a sense of joy. Um, so, yeah, it's about kind of speaking to these communities. Um, was that an answer to both? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, cool. I've, I've, something that I've been trying to... Um, remember in my work is to always um, have these three words in my head which is to um, nourish Mm -hmm. to subvert and to infect and infect actually comes from Barbie Asante who's an artist that I worked with I'm sure other people maybe other people said it before her but that's who I heard it from Um, and I guess when you're making work that is kind of like because I think my work is, is, is both for people who are like black and brown queer people with similar experiences to myself but also like my family half of my family are like white Irish and I love them dearly and like I think like I'm really I'm, I, it's, it's bad that I'm impressed but like I was thinking about this recently like it's like I think there's this whole thing of being impressed by white people for not being racist like it's like shocking that white people can be good um, but like my family are pretty great like most of them um, and um they um the the Irish side anyway like and yeah I think probably because they were racialized as Mm -hmm. not being white when they came to this country like they have an understanding of what racism is so like I think I've had lots of people be like offended by my work even though I really just think that's ridiculous but I know my white family like my work and they Mm -hmm. enjoy it Mm -hmm. um so anyway I guess that was where the infect would come in because it's like I want my work to be nourishing for myself. Like you mm-hmm. said in your thing, oh, it's, it's healing. Mm-hmm. Like I really enjoy making art, I enjoy making poetry, I enjoy making music. Um, I find it really healing. So I want to do that, but I also want other people to be able to get something from it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I want to subvert because I think like, you know, the dominant power structures, the things that make me feel you know, like I don't even own my own body at times or mm-hmm. like that I'm not allowed in certain places. So I'm always assumed to be inferior in different ways throughout my life I want to subvert and challenge and not just me my mum you know other people in my family for various different reasons like and my friends I want to subvert those systems but then infect I think is the most important one actually because I think you know you don't we don't have the energy like as we're, we're human beings and you know the patriarchy white supremacy um like the British Empire's colonial violence, all those things are going to be going on way after I've died. Mm-hmm. I'm not in any illusion about the fact that my, you know, me doing some poems or doing some illustrations, making some comics is going to, like, destroy it. But maybe. Yeah. Uh, but maybe. <laughs> but actually, maybe. maybe. I mean, I hold space for that. We can I hold space. Yeah. Yes. You know. I would. 
sure. I, sure. I mean, I'm, but, but like, I also think that these are systemic things. And yeah, they're not sure. individual things. They're yeah. systems that will be going long after I'm dead in some way or another. But so, so if I, you know, if you put all your energy towards fighting that thing, you're going to just burn out very quickly. But I think infect is the important word because you can just touch something and infect it and then it becomes sick and dies, hopefully. Um, <laughs> so, like, um, I think if I'm, you know, talking about the issues that we, we, we mentioned, I, I made these jumpers that say token on them. Because I didn't want to go into an institution, I was like, "This is tokenism. Like, I don't want to work in this institution unless I have the word token written on my chest." Um, and then my collective, sorry for uncomfortable, like, "Let's all wear them." And then we all made these token jumpers. And then people were like, "Can I buy one?" Now I've sold over 150 of these token jumpers. And every now and then, someone will send me a picture of someone wearing a token jumper at like an all-white event, and it makes me laugh so much. <laughs> and hopefully, it will infect those spaces, and people will be like, "God, did we only invite one black person? God, that's terrible." And yeah, that's shit. That like that. It's, it's, it's shit altogether, to be honest, like, that people will, like, have to kind of be made uncomfortable to, to question how they're doing things. But, yeah, hopefully the work that I do infects, like, and when I say, and all of you, definitely, because when I saw you do that sound piece, and your stuff as well, you, um, both of you have been artists that I've seen. The first time I saw you doing stuff, I was like, oh, my God, and it changed the way I thought about something. So I think, yeah, in, infect in a positive way, just... Mm -hmm. So those are, those are my things. Nourish... Subvert and um, infect, yeah. Cool. Any other thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I got told on a panel once to take off your jumper, which I thought was a really, yeah, it was really interesting. I didn't, but that was a real interesting mm. thing that was happening on, on this token jumpers. Um, I think for me, it's a bit, uh, I feel a bit different about it um, because of certain pressures I feel that happen. So I really appreciated your um, talk or poem is because I think it talks about uh, what I was, what I, there was a bit that I resonated about this, um, what happens when you're chosen by these places to be this person to represent? And I felt a pressure and to make work for other people, for my communities. And mm -hmm. that actually equaled me making not authentic work mm -hmm. um, and work that I didn't enjoy and work that I felt was um, not useful to anyone then because I didn't enjoy it. And actually it wasn't authentic to who I was trying to create for. So I actually just make work for myself and maybe that will change. And maybe in the, in the simplest sense, like I often think about how after that it maybe equals other things. And I obviously know when I, but it's for me, I have to center myself in making my work at the moment to make authentic work that isn't crowded by what I think people want me to make and how I think they want me to appear. And um, I'm really searching for a way to make work that obviously embodies lots of my identities that I hold without maybe speaking about them in a way that I have previously. Um, I would like to make work about other things that are obviously influenced by me being black and trans, but maybe are not on the surface about being black and trans because I like other things like telling jokes and fashion um, and clothes, you know, I think there's all these other things that we exist as and often we get put in this space mm -hmm. and I found it very suffocating, uh, this responsibility. Um, I was on a panel at um, a said institution and someone tweeted me afterwards saying um, it was disappointing that I didn't speak about uh, black trans uh, oppression. And I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And there were another trans person I thought that was really interesting and it had this whole moment where I just reflected like, wow, Actually, in me thinking I'm making work serving for my communities, this is obviously just for me personally, I was actually disserving them and myself by not saying we can exist in multitudes constantly. So I make work for myself, and for me at the moment, that's me. I think that is making me actually make best work for other people in turn mm -hmm. um, from doing that. Mm 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So thinking a little bit about this idea of being chosen, um, you know, I, I, I feel like probably many people in this room have had uh, moments that, that can kind of relate to that in that the institution comes to you perhaps after a period of time where you've been producing work. And I know that all of us are at varying points in our careers. But you know, there is this relationship between you know, if you, you know, feeling complicated about saying yes, but then also realizing that you know, you're negotiating and you ask for a certain amount of money, and they happen to say yes, and you're like, yeah. Right, and there are those moments that are like that. Um, I think that while they are few and far between, when it just works out just as perfectly as I said, you know, I feel like that you are faced with this choice of to participate or not. Um, and so I, I wonder, from you know, each of your perspectives, as you kind of have grown and, and navigated these things through your careers and negotiated for and by yourself, mm-hmm. um, you know, what tools have you brought to the table, or you know, kind of. Um, uh, lessons have you learned in navigating these territories because they can be quite complicated, especially for young artists and people who, you know, might not know from the beginning that they're able to say no or to kind of push back or resist within those spaces. I think there's a tweet um, by by somebody who's in my collective. I don't know if I should name them because I don't know if you know that's if they want to be quoted. Um, but I have it on the wall of, of my studio, and it's basically like, um, um, I'm here for embracing black mediocrity because working yourself to the point where your physical and mental health are like suffering is not the one. Mm-hmm. And I really love that quote because um, I feel like there's this idea of like black excellence and like mm-hmm. that we should all just be like constantly like just doing the best that we're doing and like. I don't know, and that because for some re- because because we've made work that people have liked in the past, and now we're in a position where people are looking at us that it always has to be really good, um, mm. and uh, that can be really like sh- like massively stressful. Mm. And I think also like just making work that's like I also feel like there's there just there's so much like there's endless seas of mediocre white work you know what mm-hmm. I mean like look mm-hmm. at the day like there's so many artists that you're just like how have you made a career out of this it's so boring like there's nothing you're not saying anything um and then you look at all of the amazing I just think like people are harsh we're, I think people of color specifically black people are harsher on ourselves and like I just see so much amazing 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 work being made you know and we're all just like yeah I think for me it's it's like I really, I find it really hard, and also the part, part of the reason why I didn't say the person who's, who said that, and also sometimes I don't even want to say that quote around white people because I don't think they would understand, and I don't really know if I can articulate what I mean by embracing black mediocrity. Like it's not really formed, and maybe that's mm. the point. Is that I don't know. Sometimes things don't have to be finished and formed, and yeah. I get it actually. I think I was at a performance. I will not say what performance recently, and um, there were two amazing artists of color who were performing, and I. I had spoken to them before, and they were feeling quite run down, like a bit tired. All of us have been working, et cetera. And I, I could see that they were kind of like taking a moment to just take a breath, and they went on stage. It was kind of a room. And the room was with all white people and myself and one other person of color in the room. And it was very interesting because I kind of was a fly on the wall, which happens often. I, I find myself oddly in this weird position because I think I am a lighter-skinned black woman um, that oftentimes, like, it's for some reason, it's like white people will say stuff in front of me that is very confusing, and I have a mixed family as well, so it's it like is a real violence, you know, to kind of realize that that you're in this middle space sometimes that people feel like they have the right to you know let these things fly. 
but the words that came out afterwards were two, two comments I heard um, listening was that you know, nothing happened in that performance. And somebody else said, well, it was quite derivative. And I thought that was such an interesting thing, right? Because when I spoke to the artists afterwards, they, they said, you know, they realized their energy level was only at a certain point and they were conserving energy. Mm-hmm. And for me, that made so much sense. There was no way, there was nothing, there was nothing to, to translate about that, right? But I think I appreciate what you're saying when you say that it's, it's challenging to air that kind of idea um, mm-hmm. in mixed company of sorts because of the fact that it doesn't always translate. And I, and I you know, had to, I got kind of an eye twitch and was like, oh my gosh, is this a moment where I'm about to go off at somebody? Mm-hmm. And I, I had to approach one of the people and, and you know, it asked them some questions. Um, but I think that they were unaware of the fact that they, um, that this language that they were using, right, was this idea of expecting these bodies that were in this room with them to kind of go above and beyond mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that's really challenging because that is a responsibility that is basically placed on, you know, unequally, I think, on black artists um, who are out you know, operating in the world and working that like, for whatever reason, they, because of that privilege being provided, that yeah. they have to rise to it. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, I, I agree with you, there are so many examples of you know, white performances that I've been to mm-hmm. right, where like, they also have been derivative, as in, is not art history derivative? That's basically <laughs> so many parts of producing art is about being derivative or looking backwards. Um, you know, and, and kind of citing your sources or often thefting your sources depending on where you're positioning yourself. So I, I think it is interesting, and it's a complicated point that you bring up, you know, figuring out a way to, to navigate that space. Um, and as well, when you talk about producing work, you know, for us, by us, um, you know, who that reads to and how that can kind of be coded or decoded depending on your audience. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I really relate to this idea of kind of black mediority because, mm-hmm. like, I'm quite... Um, I guess maybe Melissa, like when it comes to performing, like people get what they pay for with me. Like I'm, I'm not somebody who will go above and beyond. Like if it's not been mm-hmm, properly mm-hmm, reimbursed, mm-hmm. I just don't. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm not invested in this idea that I have to give my best performance all the time. Like I, I just, I just never have been. Like I'm, I'm kind of happy to do something that people might perceive as like, you know, not that interesting or not that exciting because I know. I know that there are other moments when it is, Absolutely. so I'm okay with the moments when it's not. Mm-hmm. But that's quite hard. I think that's quite a hard place to get to in a mm. way. But like that really resonates with me, that meteority, because I really do have a thing, like especially when it comes to performance, because when it is your body on display, mm. like it's it's exhausting, like coming out of a performance. And I think and I think it was after that 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 or or just before that in um, that moment at Innova where there had been these different performances. I think I was doing the Tate job at the time. Because um, it was 2014 and I did it 2013, 2014. So the text was like just about all of these different experiences that I was just like done with. And that was the last, <laughs> you know, it was at that moment where I was like, I'm not going to go above and beyond anymore. People get what they pay for. It was brilliant, that piece. And if, that, and, and, and if it's mediocre, it's because you didn't pay for a good mm. one. Mm. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm cool with that. <laughs> any cool any additional it. thoughts? No. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, building on that a little bit, I'll ask a question that is uh, complicated, right? So, how do we avoid becoming entertainment? This mm-hmm. idea of like late Tate lates and things like that, um, things that happen after hours. I mean, I I'm, I work in the you know, kind of divide between a very traditional, very stiff art world, it's hyper commercial, right? Mm-hmm. And then like my after hours existence, right? And it's totally bizarre because often a lot of the projects that I'm doing, um, you know, it is strange to see how they um, might 
not exist during the daytime, right? Like, you know, you see people who are in these spaces, people, members of my community who are brought into these spaces, and then they would be equally totally alienated in, in the way that maybe they feel totally um, joyful in these spaces at night, totally alienated if they were there during the day, right? Or maybe not invited in or welcomed in, or, you know, fast forward if they want a ticket to, to see a show and not have to pay the 14 pounds, that it's not considered like, you know, um, uh, like a no-brainer that the curator wouldn't reach out to them to extend that as an offer, right? So there's like something there where the invitation ends and it's like, you know, there's the door. So how do we kind of navigate that? Or like, is there a way to actually at all, considering that, you know, it's tied to our sustainability to be, to work? Um, yeah, I think I struggle because sometimes I also, um, uh, I come from like a fear background and sometimes I also want to entertain. Mm -hmm. So I really struggle with like um, this sometimes when making things, being like actually like some part of me also wants to entertain. And then it becomes for me more about this lack of control over audience and mm -hmm. having to realize that I cannot control often the audience and how they're viewing me and my body. And for me, it kind of goes also related to race, but beyond race and into how my trans femininity is viewed and all these things that kind of mean that as soon as I perform on a stage, um, I'm like public property in lots of ways because I think um, I'm already seen as a performance right now, right? If we're really being honest with how we view my femininity, it's already viewed as a performance. So for me, this idea of entertainment is hard because I don't see a clear distinction between when I perform for an event mm -hmm. and when I'm walking through the street. I think um, that requires for me some kind of privilege to not be seen as a performance constantly and entertainment constantly. And I think my femininity is seen as that often. But I think for me, and it kind of relates back to the last question you asked and also this one, it's about getting better and it's a constant work. Um, getting better at boundaries, declaring boundaries, being clear with my boundaries, and getting better at really reinstating and centering who I'm doing it for. And I really like this idea of like not always doing 110%. I'm definitely guilty of like pushing myself to this level that actually doesn't need to happen in that space. Um, but also I think it's about um, having like tips or practices of what you do when you're in these spaces that will just let them know that you're not there like fuck shit. Like, I feel like sometimes they get too comfortable with you, right? Like, you work with these places again and again. I'm like, actually, like, don't get it twisted. Like, I'm not, I'm not your little shit. Like, I'm not here for I you. I work for you. Like, yeah. I don't work for you. <laughs> yeah. I'm, free I'm freelance, but even if I did work for you, I'm still not your little shit. And for me, that stuff, like, um, um, for me, that stuff, like, again, I really think it's, about, I repeated it in my speech, so maybe I just don't need to do it again, but, like, I think it's, um, really about bringing in other people mm -hmm. for me. And it's really, that's my disruption. So normally when I'm working with an institution, they'll send me an email, they'll say, how does this sound? How does this fee sound? And they're expecting me to go, this sounds great. Yes, I need mm -hmm. this, this, and this. And instead it's me saying, actually, who else is on that venue and da 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 da, -da, -da mm -hmm. thing? I actually need this money and this money to bring in these two <coughs> people as well. And we need this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And then it's them going, uh, actually, we don't have that budget. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, then this is what the collective thing needs and this is why it's good and that for me is a small disruption but a disruption at that because it's showing them that actually like I don't need to be grateful it's unlearning this idea I think when I first got offered work for like the Tate or one of these things I was like gassed and I was like texting my mom and I was having this thing of being like oh my god what's going on like I'm doing this this and this and my mom like allowed it to happen and there was a really nice moment like four months ago when she was like oh are you excited to perform here I was like no yeah, they're like lucky to have me <laughs> and my mum was yeah. like, I'm so glad that you said that. Like, stop un un unlearning this feeling that they're doing us a favour mm -hmm. by having us. Mm -hmm. And instead, we are doing... We have something that they can't possibly possess. Mm -hmm. And we need to work really hard at knowing 
that we possess something as black artists that they will never be able to obtain. And they're scratching <coughs> at it, wanting at it, and trying to pick at it. So we are in the ones that we can be in some kind of control. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the thing around these sort of lakes and stuff, I just, I don't do them anymore. I just say mm. no. But I mean, you know, what I do, what I will do is say, but here are some people who you should reach out to. I think I'm kind of in that place now where I do a lot of like brokering of relationships. And I think kind of what you're saying about bringing people in, because I'm just not interested in doing any stuff anymore. Like, you know, I've I've had, yeah, relationships with with these organisations for a long time. And and actually they're just really, they're fucked up, they don't change. (laughs) You know what I mean? And and even though they bring in more and more of us, they're not getting any better, you know? So, so all I can do is, you know, pass on the buck, but just try and warn, warn people, mm-hmm. you know, about what they're getting into. But I just, I just don't, I don't participate. There's just a lot of things I just don't do anymore. Like, I think I that's don't. totally, yeah, totally yeah. valid. Yeah, but, then, but then at the same time, <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like there's maybe like a generation that I'm like not visible to mm-hmm. because I don't participate mm-hmm, in these mm-hmm. things. I also don't do like fashion magazines. I don't do ID. I don't do days. Mm-hmm. Like these are just decisions that I make. Right. Like I don't really do interviews mm-hmm. unless it's like, you know, like a really particular thing. And these are just sort of decisions that I made because I don't like how we are mm-hmm. constantly instrumentalized and exploited. But then again, it has its minuses because then you just you're not seen and by you, some and people you need the money as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, like I take those jobs because thing. I need the money really badly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I'm doing something at Tate on Monday, I'm doing a listening session and I'm doing yeah. loads of workshops with, with kids yeah. like coming up, but it's because like yeah, because I need the money. And also because yeah. the, the Soul of a Nation exhibition is like some of my favourite artists and I want to have a dialogue with those works. But I also want a chance to be in that space and be put on a platform to call out the fact that we should have had a Soul of an Empire exhibition because, I'm sorry, what, why do we need yeah. to look to America? Yes. Um, yeah, it's the US thing, isn't it? It's yeah. still easier to engage with... I think that, Evan, we've spoken about this yeah. before, yeah. definitely, right? <laughs> but for just in, in, in a moment, I'm going to open up for questions yeah. because I'm aware of time, but I do think that the, the um, Soul of a Nation exhibition, there's a lot to talk about there um, from an American perspective with me being American and seeing how that, you know, kind of how we manufacture or displace culture into other cultures and how that idea of a monolithic blackness and what that looks like can be very challenging. Um, so I encourage everyone to check the show out and keep talking about it because um, there's amazing artworks within it but also of course it brings up a lot of questions about you know what's local to the UK and how artwork is being produced here and by whom um, I'm going to open up for questions if there are any because um, I know that we can sit for quite a while and keep chatting are there any questions no really come on guys What about you guys? What about questions amongst? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I'm quite interested in you um, Evan, to like, elaborate on the point that you made about speaking about the artwork instead yeah. of about, about yeah. being a black artist, about mm-hmm. the issues around, yeah. I mean, not actually about the work itself, but something yeah. that maybe lacks around, you know, really exploring yeah. what the work is trying to interrogate. Um, I, get, I guess because, you know, often when we're in panels and situations, like after, after an event, after a performance, after whatever, 
you know, often we're talking about the conditions that we're operating in, not actually what's going on mm. with the work. And I think, but this is this is something that's been going on for black artists since the beginning of time. Mm. We're always talking about the work, you know, Christine's wife. We're never actually talking about the work. And I feel like actually it's been to our detriment, at least mm. in this context. Because I just don't feel like there is a lot of discourse around like contemporary black British art. Like, where is it? You know what I mean? Like, where is it? Um, and I think this is this is what I was trying to you know kind of hint at by like really centering like examples of work i just wish we would like start with artwork <laughs> you know um in our like conversations like there's um, some real interesting because personally like i i i really can't i'm i'm, I'm doing a, uh, i'm studying i'm doing a master's and i really can't stand academia and i feel like part <laughs> of the reason that i'm doing a master's is to prove to myself that i can do it like yeah. and like it'll exist in that world which has never been for me at all and has always made me feel like not part of it but it's i'm inter- it's interesting to listen and to learn like you know some really amazing black academics which are very you know marginal to the reading list i'm doing art and politics at goldsmiths mm-hmm. but then i think about it and so many of the things that i am even reading like you know foucault and agamben and these people mm-hmm that you're supposed to know, you read a lot of this stuff, and I'm like, I swear I saw a poem that, that basically summed this up, you know? Like, I, there's so much of the, the, the knowledge that is in academia, that's in these kind of respected places, that knowledge is in the artwork that I'm seeing black and brown people who have no academic education making mm-hmm. um, and, and translating in a way that I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a real, yeah, there's a real, like, nourishing thing happening within like actually looking at yeah. specific artworks. Like to give a couple of examples, there's a poet, Keith Jarrett, who I really like. And the first time I saw him doing a poem at um, Black Pride, he was doing this poem called A Gay Poem. And it's like a poem about how he was asked if he has a gay poem. And then he's like, the poem is him like asking each of his poems if it's gay and like, which oh no, that's the, that, that poem is the black poem, that poem is the gay poem. And like, basically he just outlines intersectionality and what intersectionality means like in a really funny way that's entertaining, um, that you can't separate one part of yourself off. Also, the first time I ever saw you, you were doing um, a poem about Audre Lorde, I think, or it mentioned Audre Lorde, and it was like, this year is the year that I'm gonna have all these things. Um, and you just moved to London, I think. Um, and it was this like s- self empowerment poem. Yeah, it was like wow, so awesome. It was like this year I'm gonna do th- is the year that this year is the year that I'm gonna stop saying no, this and start living it. And like, <laughs> but it was like a really kind of like it was, and it's also like a black power that I've seen mm. like in praise poems from like you know Nigeria for, mm. in, in in Pentecostal churches Church. in rap in this thing mm. of self empowerment. Like mm. I will have this, and you have you did it. Like you literally yeah, like look at you. Yeah. You've got it! <laughs> it's got nails. What you did? I just, I what? said in that poem, I just wanted a set of acrylic nails. And four no. years on, she's got them. No, you were, you, you were saying all this really empowering, beautiful, empowering stuff, and I feel like, yeah, it seemed like it was like manifesting as you were talking about it. Um, and I think there's so many other artworks, specific artworks, that I've seen black performance artists produce where I'm like, shit! Like, oh my God, Serena Reynolds, my favourite poet, has a poem that's like the history of paper from like a monk peeling some bark off the tree. Oh, it's amazing. And like, yeah, sorry to ramble. No, I I want to just give time for final comments. And I'm going to also ask a question to close us out, right? And then I hope you guys, if you do have questions secretly, you'll stick around and ask them. Um, I just wanted to, well, maybe actually instead of me commenting, if is that is a question from someone, because it would be nice if, yeah, maybe that's better than me commenting again. Sorry. I don't know, not right now. 
Yes. The name of the, I think you answer me. The name of the artist which you're talking about. The Keith Jarrett. Like Rodin, looks like Rodin. Oh, Mary. Meta Vo Warwick Fuller. Meta Vo. Yeah, I'll, I can. You can take a picture of uh, her name written down okay, on, on afterwards if you want, and same goes to anyone else. I really recommend checking yes. out her work. Yeah. It's beautiful, and she's a poet. Yeah. Thank you very much. I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. wanted to pick Please, up on Evans. Yeah. It's like burning. It was like a real resonance to this idea that no one's talking about the work. I recently mm. released like a little tiny book and it had loads of reviews and loads of like things and press about it, but in none of them did anyone analyse any of my actual poems that I'd mm. written or right. any of my texts <laughs> or put give credit to like any of the like work and labour that I'd put into this. Mm. It was just like black trans. Visibility. Mm. How great is this that there's a black trans? And then in all the interviews, like I did one for mm. ID, mm. I did Artsy, I did all these things. Mm. It was mm. all about me navigating the world mm. and like talking about yeah. the world, but none of it was about like my intelligence to mm. make the work that I did. Right. Mm. And that's where I think it links right back to who I make the work for. It's that building that mm. I start to get really frustrated and somewhat resentful about mm. having to make work for these things because then I put it out. And it's what, exactly what you say happening. So I just wanted to chip that in. It's Duly like noted. so annoying. Duly noted. Well, final comment. I'm going to ask each of you a question. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Octavia Butler is that she says, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. Mm -hmm. So um, let's be real. As we noted before, right, th these questions that we're asking here, this discussion, unfortunately, is not new. It's been happening for years. It's going to continue past our all of our ex collective expiration dates, right? And as you were saying before. Um, so, you know, it's part of an ongoing history of critique. That said, we're not going to solve this today, although hopefully we scratch <laughs> at the surface. Um, I'm wondering if each of you can leave us with maybe a new sun that each of us can turn our faces to. So, mm -hmm. like, thinking about one thing that an artist or ourselves as creative practitioners can teach critics. I mean, yeah, to start with the work, mm -hmm. what it's doing, like, you know, I, you know I, I, I want us to be in a space where we're not just sort of celebrating the fact that we exist, but that we're actually really looking at what our work does, mm -hmm. um, you know, and unpacking that. Really, and actually being able to critique each other, but with yeah. love, mm. you know? Um, yeah, that's all I could really hope for, really. I would say um, there, was, <clears throat> it's a, there was a quote from Frank B. Wilderson, um, the Afro-pessimist Afro writer recently. I can't remember the actual quote, so I shouldn't have said that, but he, was, he basically said that, like, it's, it's not useful to think about kind of, like, oppression in a kind of, like, literal way, and that we need to start thinking abstractly about it and, like, you know, get rid of this imagery of kind of, like, the, the, the bars, the, the chains and the slave ship and, then, and, and talk and be free to be, or be more abstract. And I think, I'm misquoting him a little bit, but what I would take from that is kind of like how liberating it has been to move into like Afrofuturism with my work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead of making work that talks about um, race and gender, making work that talks about like being an alien and like traveling to different planets and, um, you know, that like talks, kind of pokes fun at like concepts like gender and like just doing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like I think that, also, like in a literal way, there's a really long history of black abstract artists, mm -hmm. even Br mm -hmm. British mm -hmm. ones too, who've made some really cool work. And I think, yeah, there's this idea that black art needs to be in a direct, like cohesive, 
dialogue with white supremacy mm-hmm. like you know here's my sculpture about slavery and here's my poem about like the industrial prison complex it's like it doesn't have to be coherent dialogue mm-hmm. at all like they can be black art can be whatever the fuck it wants it can literally be out, you know about aliens it could be about whatever yes um i think my new son would be to remind myself and others that our relationship to other black people um, and black artists and anyone, but specifically black people, should be embedded as a core part of our practice too. Hmm. Well, that leaves us with some great things to turn to. I hope you guys will stick around for a little bit, ask some questions. Um, I know that each of these amazing individuals here have lots to say that extends beyond what we've discussed today. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to 154 for having us and for Kefila for organizing. Um, And have an amazing rest of your weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.